Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The government publishing office, once a bastion of ink, lead type, paper, and heavy printing presses, is now fully into the 21st century. It's looking at ways it can improve operations with artificial intelligence. Director Hugh Halpern recently testified to the Senate Rules and Administration Committee about AI. He joins me now for a recap. Hugh, good to have you with us again. Always good to be back with you, Tom. All right. So artificial intelligence and GPO, the use cases aren't immediately apparent. Tell us what you testified about. Sure. The first thing to keep in mind is GPO is a manufacturing operation. We're a little bit different than most government agencies in that we actually produce finished goods for our customers. And we have customers in all three branches of government. And one of the things that we're really focused on is delivering those customers their products with the highest possible quality at the lowest possible cost. So if we can adopt tools that help us do that, that really accrues to our customers' benefit and ultimately the taxpayer benefit. So let me give you one good example. One of the things that we do is we produce the United States passport. Last year, we produced 22 million of them. We've got another order from the State Department for another 22 million this year. We have equipment that will examine the identity pages, which is made of a new material that we manufacture here at GPO, to make sure that those pages are within all of the high quality and security specifications laid out by our customer. And using a very rudimentary form of AI, a very rudimentary form of computer vision, it can look at those pages, decide which ones are within spec and which ones aren't, and reject the ones that aren't for a quality team to take another look at. Similarly, we are using uh, tools that have some AI features to scan documents as we're putting them up on GovInfo, our trusted digital repository, to make sure that those documents don't contain personally identifiable information. These services can do this far more efficiently than a human being could, and that's important information we've got to keep private. So if we can have tools that do that and do it quicker and more accurately than we were getting before. We really want to do that. We view these kinds of technologies as a force multiplier for us here at GPO uh, to make sure that we've got the ability for our folks to deliver for our customers. One thing that caught my eye was proofreading of documents before they're published, and clearly that's a time-consuming thing that takes a person. Have you found that the AI tools that can help with this are more advanced than, say, spell check? or the grammar check that is built into something like Microsoft Word, which often misses the context of what you're doing and suggests things that actually don't apply. You wouldn't want those to happen automatically. That's a great question. And we are really at the nascent stages of looking at this technology for that purpose. Proofreading is really key for us. We produce both the congressional record and the federal register, and we do that overnight, five days a week or any day that Congress is in session. And having tools that can free up our proofreading team, those really talented human beings, to look at those more difficult questions that really require a human being to look at, if they can clear out some of the underbrush, that's a really important benefit for us. So I can share with you an example I used at the hearing 
at GPO convention is we always capitalize the word state when we're referring to a political subdivision of the United States. But the word state gets used in a lot of different contexts. So while we have scripts that are really blunt instruments, they're big search and replace programs, they don't have the ability to discern when we're referring to the state of Wisconsin or a New York state of mind. So if we can get more sophisticated algorithms, more sophisticated tools that can discern some of those things, that means our proofreaders are freed up from having to clean up after the machines and really are able to focus on bigger issues. We're speaking with Hugh Halpern. He's director of the Government Publishing Office. So that sounds like in that particular instance, you would use a large language model type of AI. And I haven't really heard that in all of the discussions, applying that to legislation, for example, where you have sometimes enormous documents, thousands of pages, with very specific language that frankly is not found in too many other human endeavors. That's absolutely true. And whatever you call this, whether you call it AI or it's a large language model or it's generative, they all have applications to what we're doing. One key thing to keep in mind for GPO, unlike Congress or unlike, frankly, a lot of other federal agencies, we don't generate content ourselves. Our job is to deliver content to the American people and really worldwide on behalf of our customers. So we are less looking at some of these generative technologies, although they could have applications, for instance, in our acquisitions team to help write federal procurement contracts, things like that. And we're looking at some of those in a pilot. But we're really focused on some of these technologies, much like you get if you're composing something in Gmail or in Outlook, where it's suggesting a better way to phrase phrase things. So as these tools get more abilities, we want to make sure that we can incorporate those into our workflows to make our folks more productive. And how do you go about deploying them? Because clearly it takes the information technology staff. But what about the craftspeople, the readers, the people that have been doing this work? Do you bring them in to really get a deeper understanding of what's the best way to apply these tools? Oh, absolutely. The key thing to keep in mind is we want to do this very, very carefully. We don't want to introduce quality issues into our workflow. And the best people who are going to be able to tell us where we can apply a tool and get the maximum value out of that tool are the people who are doing the work. You know, you can have the best IT folks in the world, but if they're not the ones actually doing the work, they might design a tool that doesn't work in our workflow. So having the folks who are actually doing the work as part of the development process is really key for us. And again, this is not to replace any of these really talented individuals. It's to, again, act as a force multiplier to allow them to keep up with the increasing volume that we're getting for federal documents and let them continue doing the work that they're doing just more productively. Do you think that AI could maybe help with the logistics? Because you do have printing operations, even though they're much more customized and, you know, they're duplicators in effect blown up as opposed to printing presses where you can have small quantities, large quantities. So there's a lot of scheduling, paper delivery, et cetera, variables that go into the daily operation. Can it help maybe speed those up or make things more efficient? Absolutely. And that can help with our production planning. 
but it can also help at the end of the press. So I was talking about some of the computer vision tools that we currently use. You know, as we invest in new printing equipment, new presses, most of those are going to come with some version of a computer vision tool to check quality on the back end as well. And with newer technologies like digital inkjet and similar technologies, it's much more robust in the ability to find an error, stop, correct that error, and pick up than older offset technologies. Although, frankly, some of the uh, offset presses we're looking at incorporate these same kinds of computer vision uh, technologies as well. Yeah, so compatibility through the supply chain then would be an issue in deploying AI so that it won't foul up what's built into the machines, for example. No, absolutely. Although most of the major manufacturers are working to incorporate similar kinds of technologies into their products. And some of that we can add to existing equipment and some of it will just be introduced into the workplace as we go through our normal cycle of replacing equipment. And while this is going on, we should comment on the fact that the GPO had a billion retrievals in 2023 through the GovInfo portal. Tell us about that one. That's a milestone. Well, it is. And actually, this week marks uh, GovInfo's eighth anniversary. So we're very proud of that. GovInfo is the world's only ISO-certified trusted digital repository. That's really the highest level of certification you can get for that kind of repository for digital documents. So we have found that folks like getting data digitally more and more, and we've seen that as a steady increase in the volume of documents folks are getting from GovInfo. We're also supplying that data to other sites as well. So our partners at the Library of Congress use our GovInfo data when they're populating their site at congress.gov. So, you know, this is data that is really useful to anybody trying to follow the legislative process or figure out how a bill became a law. And we work really hard to make that available, as do our partners. Hugh Halpern is director of the Government Publishing Office. As always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again, Tom. Always happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his AI testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported 
and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.